Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. Today, I'm I'm excited to pick back up on this series that we started uh, just after Easter called See the King, where we are taking a look at Jesus, looking at who Jesus was and, and who Jesus said he was and what Jesus was up to and what Jesus said he was up to and, and maybe most importantly for us, what that might mean for us, what that might look like for us. Uh, it, it seemed like as we look at the life of Jesus and the time, the public ministry of Jesus, so many people, so many common people, regular Joe people liked Jesus. And it seemed like, you know, maybe the, the not so much the religious leaders or the holy men of the day, but it seems like people who had the least in common with Jesus ended up liking him the most. And and I think there's a reason for that. And we're going to look at that today in our lesson. But a lot of people then, and and sadly, and a lot of people nowadays in in our time stop short, even though we might might look Jesus or like Jesus, even though we might admire Jesus and and what we see about him and what we see in his teachings. it, It seems like so many people stop short of actually selling out and following Jesus. And so what was it that they couldn't see about him? What is it that maybe sometimes we can't see about him that could be the difference in us following or not following Jesus? That's why it's so important that we kind of look at his life and look at his life in the context that his life was lived. So to, to set up today, uh, I want to sh- start the, the, the message today with a picture. And for some of you, you're going to get the cold sweats when I show you this picture. You're going to get really nervous, start feeling really anxious, and it's going to bring up some bad memories. Maybe for some of you, it's going to bring up some good memories. But here we go. Are you ready? Okay, Junior is. Here we go. It's a high school cafeteria. How many of you, this is good memories? Raise your hand or clap your hands. <laughs> Junior's greatest weakness is listening. But it's, it's how, many of you, how many of you, this makes you nervous? How many of you remember being nervous in the high school cafeteria? Yeah, I see some, you're too nervous to put your hands up right now. That's all the introverts in the room. You're like, I'm not putting my hand up. That was, that was me, but I'm not admitting it. But in the high school cafeteria, is where we had to find our people. You know what I'm talking about? That first day with a lunch tray and you came out of elementary school or middle school rather and and, your friends didn't make the jump to that school with you. You you think you remember one person from the middle school but they're in another class or you you just saw them earlier. And so you turn that corner into the cafeteria and there are tables filled with people who look like each other at every table. There's the goth table over there. There's the band table over there. Guy's got a trumpet out, you know, some, some drumsticks, right? They're the jocks over there. And then they're the nerds and they got the calculators next to their, their plate of mystery meat on, you know. It's just, you know, that, you know, in one, maybe some of y'all don't remember because you were at this other table, the table of stoners, Right, maybe you know there was a table with one person, a table of loners, uh, or, or maybe it got a little more serious than that. Maybe it was like the rich kids sat over here, the poor kids sat over here, right? Maybe it was even more serious than that. Hello, somebody like the white kids, the black kids, the Mexican kids. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody remember all of this angst from from high school where everybody has a bubble? 
Everybody wears a label. Everybody is, is separated and apart from each other. And, and there's anxiety and there's uncertainty. And we're not sure where we fit in, but we really want to fit in. And it seems like whatever group kind of seems to like you the most in high school, that's usually the group that you kind of end up with. Whatever group seems like they might like you or whatever group kind of looks like you, that's the group that we kind of end up being the most liked. And and, and so that's kind of why we went through phases a lot of times in high school, right? It's why you wore those clothes for a while. It's why you look back on your high school yearbook and you had that hairdo. Yeah, yeah, you guys know exactly what I'm talking. It's why that summer you did that thing, right? This is why maybe even your grades for a while kind of reflected the crowd that you were around because you just wanted to fit in. We all just wanted to fit in. And and, and it was all about seeing where we were most comfortable. Now, last week, if you remember, I talked about how that when I was growing up, I always wanted to be cool. Right, I always wanted to be one of the cool kids. Uh, I am happy to bring you some good news this morning. Um, in my high school years, especially my my uh, senior year, I, I turned out to be a star athlete. I was on on my high school team. I was a drummer. Jason, be quiet. I was a drummer, so I was good with the band team. I was the student council president. I was actually the valedictorian, and out of my graduating class, I was voted most likely to succeed. So I will be forever grateful to my parents for homeschooling me. (laughs) Just saying, quite the pedigree. Uh, That all went on my resume too, by the way. No, just kidding. But, you know, I I used to think as I got older and as I graduated and, and, you know, kind of entered the the workforce, it seemed like all of that kind of went away. Like, as I got my first job, it seemed like there were people there, kind of a diverse, it was a small company, but fairly diverse, but it seemed like all of that junk and the separation and the anxiety and not fitting in kind of went away, but it seems like that just doesn't end at high school anymore. Like, right? I mean, anybody else watch the news or follow, you know, people on Facebook? It just seems like the whole world has turned into a giant high school cafeteria, and everywhere, you know, just you know, there are different political parties sit at different tables. You're guns and you're not guns. You're a Trumper and you're a never Trumper. You're immigration reform and you're open borders, right? Racism all of a sudden is just kind of rearing up again in our society, or maybe it's just kind of being unmasked a little bit. Free speech is now one of these things. You can say anything you want or no, you can't say things like that anymore. There's all of these divisions and there are all of these tables now in our political arena, in our secular arena, in this society. And and what happens is just like high school, we end up only interacting with people from our table. And that's all over. Whatever your table is defines who you interact with. This defines your social media feed. This, de- this defines who you follow. Oops, I went too far. This defines who you follow and don't follow. Is it going on? It's going on? Oh, well. Stop it, please, Zach. You can stop it. There you go. Okay, sorry about that. It was running ahead of me. My presentation is in a hurry to get done today. Um, but whatever your table is defines who you interact with. And, 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 you know, your social media feed. Now you can curate who you follow and who you don't follow. You don't like what they said? I just unlike you. 
I don't like what you said. I'm not going to poke you anymore on Facebook. I don't know what poke means on Facebook anyway, so that's fine. Or maybe you're Fox News or maybe you're CNN. And it seems like reporting isn't even reporting anymore, is it? It just seems like everybody's just editorializing for their viewer base. And all of this just kind of segments our society. And whatever table we feel like we are sitting at, we are huddled up at our table and we point fingers sitting at the other table and we demonize the people sitting at the other tables and we vilify the people with different viewpoints than ourselves. And the world has become a huge high school cafeteria. And what's really interesting is how huge and how troublesome of an issue this has become for the church. Because if you are part of the church, if you're part of the Jesus movement, that's supposed to be for everyone, as soon as you post something on Facebook, as soon as you get involved in one of these conversations and identify yourself as belonging to one table, you lose your ability to reach or to influence someone who may be sitting at a different table. You do. It's why you guys, I've kind of teased with you guys before that I'm like a chameleon up here. You guys don't know who I am or what I stand for. It will always be that way with me. I promise you, I give you my word. I'm not embarrassed of that. I'm not trying to be two-faced. I just don't want to lose my influence with somebody over a political position. I am not going to do that. I am not, you think I'm going to get up here and spew my political opinion? You think I'm going to forfeit my ability to reach a Democrat because I think Republicans can make America great again? Come on, somebody. You think I'm going to give up my voice with Republicans because I thought Obama was really going to be the one to bring hope and change? I'm not doing it. I am not going to do it. And I am increasingly of the opinion they are all crooks. Yes, that might be the biggest applause of the day if I tell you, go, go, no, I'm just, you know, that's horrible. I, I saw a bumper sticker one time and I absolutely love it. It said, don't vote, it only encourages them. <laughs> Man, I feel that way anymore. Listen to me, Democrats have broken marriages. Republican fathers are missing from their families. Drug addicts and alcoholics are on both sides of the immigration wall. People are broken on both sides of the aisle. There are racists on both sides of the aisle. We are all broken without Jesus. If you want to know whose side I'm on, I'm on his side. That wasn't the slide, but it fits. God loves people not tables. Now, are you saying, Jared, that Jesus doesn't care about the political issues of the day? No, he cares very much about the political issues of the day, but he is determined to put the right people. Hello? He is determined to put the right people, people who have been made right, into the positions where they can make the issues right again. We talked about this before. What good is a, good, what good is a new government if it's full of the same corruption? And so I'm here to tell you today, maybe to bust your bubble, that whatever political table you might find yourself seated at, it's not God's table. The Republican Party is not God's party, and the Democratic Party is not God's answer for the world. It's not. Jesus has his own thing, and it is infinitely better. Infinitely better. So this is one of the things that Jesus did. And we looked at this in the first couple of weeks that we were together, that people that were traditionally thought of as sitting at God's table 
When Jesus showed up, he said, actually, God's not there. God has moved tables. And you guys are claiming to be at his table, but God's over here. And then people say, well, we're Jewish. We're God's special people. And Jesus and John the Baptist and Jesus, when they first started the movement, said, look, God can make Jewish people out of these rocks. Your Jewish nationality is no longer a condition of, nor is it sufficient for sitting at God's table. We're holy men. We are religious leaders. We're sitting at God's table. And he's saying, you're making people so not want to sit with you that God himself has gotten up and moved from your table. And so there's so much to say to this. And I don't want to get bogged down. I was putting my nose together. I was like, okay, don't, don't, don't go too far. But Jesus basically showed us that this line between good and evil, between right and wrong, and, and, and it runs down the middle of each and every one of us. It's not, you know, it's not a political party line. It is a line that runs down the middle of each and every one of our hearts. And at each and every moment of our lives, we find ourselves with the capacity to do good or to do evil. It's true. You look at even the way he treated Peter. One moment, Peter said, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, you're blessed, Peter. And the next moment, Peter said, well, you shouldn't be crucified. I'm not going to let that happen. And he said, get behind me, Satan. In a moment, Peter found himself on the good side and on the wrong side. And we have that same capacity and the same danger and the same privilege and the same responsibility to each and every moment like we have been singing about all morning long to say, not my will, but yours be done. To say, Holy Spirit, come and flood my heart and my mind and my life. And let me always remember that God, you don't care so much about the tables, but you are madly in love with people. And I know this because I found out that you are mad in love with me. Come on, somebody. Can you give him thanks because he's in love with you? And so Jesus just, he always seemed to sit with people just at any table. Didn't matter if it was the right quote-unquote table or the wrong quote-unquote table. And he just didn't seem to care that it confused the mess out of people who thought he should be sitting at their table. Wait, you're a Jew. You can't sit with a Samaritan. And then Jesus goes and sits with a Samaritan. You're a Jew. You can't sit with the, the, the traitors and the tax collectors. And Jesus invited one of them to be part of his crew. He said, go ahead. Come on over. Join me at the table. You're a man. You can't have a conversation with a woman. And yet Jesus had conversations with women all the time. You're a holy man. You should never let a prostitute talk to you or touch you. And yet there is Jesus time and again offering hope to the most marginalized in that society. Jesus, over and over and over again, you can hear it in their accusations. Jesus, we are so confused. Why in the world are you sitting at that table? And, a G, and time and again, Jesus' response was, God loves people, not tables. Does not care about your label. And John, who's one of Jesus' closest followers, he actually tells us about this time when Jesus seemed to sit at three different wrong tables with one person. There was one lady, one woman that we're gonna look at today, and she broke at least three rules of the Jewish high school cafeteria code of conduct. First of all, again, she was a woman. And in that day, men did not speak to women who weren't their wives, and they barely spoke to their wives. And Jesus came along and he actually changed all of that. If you're an advocate of women's rights, you should love the Jesus movement. It's, a, it's amazing to me that in a time when women weren't even allowed to testify in courts, 
because they were considered unreliable and uneducated witnesses. The whole first witness, the most important witnesses of the resurrection were women. Jesus staked the entire reputation of his resurrection on some women. Of that day, it was completely radical. So she was a woman. Jesus shouldn't have been sitting at her table. Second, she was a woman of what we might call, if I can be generous and kind, she was a woman of low moral standards. Holy men do not associate with women of low moral standards. They certainly don't have conversations with them at a well when no one else is around to hear what they are saying. Men of that day tended to objectify women just like Hollywood does today. Women were good for just about one thing, and that was about it. Third, this woman was a Samaritan. And we kind of don't get this, you know. We, it, it was this, this bitter family feud that had been around for hundreds, maybe thousands of years by this time. These two groups of people, the Jews and the Samaritans, they loathed each other. They hated each other. They could not stand one another. And it just so happened that they lived right next door to each other. And it was all bad between them. And so John, who was one of Jesus' three closest followers, he remembers what happened this day, and he wrote it all down, and and he's telling us about it in this little short biography that he did of Jesus' public career. And he sets the scene in John chapter 4 and verse 1. If I can get there. Zach, can you help me out? Can you run it from there? There we go. Nope, go back. There you go. So John, one of Jesus' closest followers, he writes down in John chapter 4 and verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining more, uh, gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They were the people that Jesus had come along and was kind of making redundant and unnecessary in their society. The, you know, this John that we read about here, John the baptizer or John the Baptist, we already saw a couple of weeks ago that he came on the scenes and he was telling people, hey, you don't need to go to the temple to have your sins forgiven. You can come out and join me and I'll put you under the water and you can have all of your sins forgiven way out here. And you don't have to buy goats and sheep and pigeons and all these other things to make animal sacrifices. God's not doing that anymore. Come here and I can help you get your sins forgiven in baptism. But the thing was, if people didn't need the temple for forgiveness, then people didn't need the temple. And if people didn't need the temple anymore, then they did not need the religious leaders like the Pharisees. And so John was baptizing people by the thousands and now Jesus Bad news to worse, he's gaining and baptizing even more followers than John was. And so here's commercial time. You guys ready for a word from our sponsor? This is what you do when you believe in Jesus. You get baptized as part of becoming a Jesus follower. For 2,000 years, the Jesus movement has been baptizing people as a symbol of forgiveness of sins. This is something that you do in front of people to let them know, I am laying the old me to rest in this symbolic thing called baptism where it looks like a burial. I am laying my old life and my old values and my past and my failures. All of that now is being buried. And when I come out of these waters, I am rising up to a brand new life. All of my shame and all of my guilt has been completely washed away. Jesus, through the miracle of baptism, has made us new. Oh, come on and give him a hand clap of praise. Come on, if you really believe what I'm saying this morning, that your guilt and your shame and your sins are washed away. 
So this is what you do, and baptism has so, so much meaning, and we're going to dive into this over the next couple of weeks as well, but just everything before is laid to rest, and I come out of the water as a brand new, as a brand new kind of person, a new creature in Christ Jesus. And all of us in the Jesus family, we see these baptisms and we celebrate these baptisms because we know that someone else is being added to this Jesus family that we have been a part of. And so next, or Sunday, May 20th, is Baptism Sunday. And during the service here on, on Baptism Sunday, we're going to be baptizing people. While the music's going on and while the singing's going on, we're going to be baptizing people right over here. And I'm so excited about this. So excited. Listen, I wish Baptism Sunday had existed when I got baptized. Because I'm like you. When I got dunked in a tub of water, I didn't want a bunch of strangers looking at me. No, I'm the only one? Come on, somebody. Again, all the, I'm siding with the introverts and you're all afraid to say, yeah, me too. I just I keep forgetting about that. None of us wants to get dunked in a water with a bunch of people staring at us. I knew I had to have some people around to celebrate, but I didn't want all of the attention focused on me. And here I was, the pastor's kid. Like, you talk about pressure to be baptized. I was almost 16 years old by this time. There was tremendous pressure for me to be baptized at that time. Every time that I acted up in Sunday school or youth group, guess what? Well, yeah, he's not baptized. What do you expect? You know, just... All the time. And so I had to wait. I had to wait until there was a group of people getting baptized. And then I said, okay, I'm going to get baptized too. Because then at least it was with Lacey and Sandy. Remember that, Lacey? Lacey and Sandy were there and we got baptized together. Because then at least the attention was divvied up by three. Like, you know, it was only a third of the attention if it was just me. But still, when I got baptized, every eye was on me when I got baptized, and I did not like that. But on Baptism Sunday, you're going to be getting baptized, and everybody's still going to be looking at Dustin while he dances up here with those incredible moves. So no, I, sorry, Dustin, thank you for letting me beat you up about this. I love their energy that they bring. Anybody glad for our worship team? So the music's going to be going on, and we're not going to stop and pause. It's just going to happen while worship is happening, and, and there'll be other people here to kind of divvy up the, the, the attention. And so it's perfect. Why didn't anybody think of Baptism Sunday sooner? I probably would have been baptized like at 14 instead of 15, but just... You know, so if you're an introvert, this is the best day for you to be baptized. I get it because all of the attention won't be on you. Your Jesus family will be here to celebrate with you, but you won't have to be the center of all the attention. Jesus is the one that we will be giving all of the glory and all of the praise to on Baptism Sunday. So you got to sign up. We've already had two or three people sign up and Baptism Sunday sign-ups didn't even happen until this morning. They signed up before. But if you want to sign up, go to the app or text CG Baptism to 97,000. We'll get you all set up for Baptism Sunday. That's the end of our commercial. Now back to our regular programming because we left John and the other people in Jesus in the desert. And they're sweating and hot because it's hot in the desert. John chapter four, verses three and four. So Jesus left Judea because all this, these Pharisees were pressuring him and coming against him, and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now when John says this, this wasn't like there was only one way to get there. But what John was saying, if you can help me out, 
boom. If you see down here, the blue part at the bottom, that's Judea. The red part at the top is Galilee. And in the middle, that purple spot is Samaria. Now, if you'll notice that red trail off to the right, that's the way that Jewish people normally went up and went down between Galilee and Jerusalem because they did not like Samaritans. Like these people hated each other. But Jesus, it says, had to go through Samaria. And when you read what John is telling us later, it's not like Jesus had to do it because it was the only way to get there. It's like John is saying, you know, Jesus, walking right down the middle of the cafeteria, he just had to go through Samaria, verses five and six. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, and Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. And John has given us all of this detail and the history and geography and the time. And why is John doing this? Because he's setting up the scene to let us know just how wrong table this woman was that Jesus meets with at the well. And so the disciples go to the village to buy food and Jesus is alone there at the well. In verse seven, it says, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew. That is so offensive. (laughs) You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John writes this in the footnotes. He's like, you guys don't understand. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. This This was scandalous. And the lady's looking at Jesus and she's saying, why are you sitting at my table? This is not your table. I've dealt with people from your, your table before and it never turns out good. So why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus answers her and says, if you knew the gift of God, and he's talking about himself, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him. Now here's some context. This, we're in John chapter four. John chapter three has maybe the most famous verse in all the Bible. Anybody know John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he, he gave. There's this idea of a gift, something that has been given to the whole world. And Jesus, John is picking up on Jesus' words. If you knew the gift of God, if you knew who I was, if you knew what I was, if you knew what my life signifies about how God feels about you. Now, He says this thing. Anybody ever known someone that thought they were God's gift to the world? Anybody ever knew a man? I I had a friend growing up. He thought he was God's gift to women. Anybody ever work with someone thought they were God's gift? You're all nervous to laugh. It's okay. Anybody ever work with somebody? And and Nora and Katrina, you guys stay quiet. Thought they were God's gift to the office, right? You know, someone they thought they knew it all. If it wasn't for them, nothing would ever get done. They're running the whole show. You guys are really lucky I'm here. LeBron James, you know, thought he was a God's gift to basketball. LaFlop James, I'll just, uh, that's where I'll leave my, I'm just setting this up for the playoffs. So, I mean, the, the finals, I'm just setting it up. But Jesus, notice, you know, Jesus, when he says this, other people, it grates on us and it rubs us the wrong way. But there's something about Jesus 
There's something about us knowing what Jesus was eventually going to do. There's something about us knowing what Jesus would eventually say about us and to us that when Jesus says this, there's no idea here of him being stuck up or arrogant or anything else. He is speaking the truth that Jesus and his life and his beauty and his love and his mercy is the greatest gift that we have ever received, that humanity could ever hope for. We find it all in Jesus, something so amazing. But sometimes we take him for granted and he is God's gift. He is God's gift to us. And so Jesus says, if you knew God's gift and he's calling himself God's gift, but not to get attention, not to get applause or not to get our, our admiration, but to show us that he is in fact a gift for us. You would have asked him and he would have given, go back, oh no, go back forward one, three, whoop. Man, this is really blowing up on me, isn't it? You got it, Zach? If you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is saying, I am here for you. I am here to give you something. And this is why Jesus couldn't just sit at one table. He was God's gift to the world. It's why God, Jesus didn't just come to sit at my table, but he came to sit at your table. And then he came to sit at your table and your table and your table and your table and your table because he is God's gift, not to just a table, not to just one group of people, not to just one color of skin, not to just one language, not to just one wealth status. He is God's gift to the world and Jesus does not want something from you. Jesus came to give something for you. He's God's gift for you. He didn't have to ask her for a drink. He could have made it rain. He could have made a bottle of Aquafina Fiji water appear out of nowhere 2,000 years in advance. He didn't have to go through Samaria and end up in this conversation. But in another sense, it's exactly what he had to do to be who he was and to live out the reason that Jesus even came here. And Jesus said, I can give you living water. And she and we look at that phrase and we say, what? Living water? What in the world are you talking about with living water? Sir, this woman said, you got nothing to draw with. That well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Right? She's skeptical. She didn't say, where can you get living water? As in, I know what you're talking about. It's where can you get this living water. This so-called living skeptical and mocking and doesn't really understand what he's offering, just like skeptics today mock Jesus' followers. Why in the world are you guys so crazy about Jesus? Why do you guys give your lives to Jesus and follow Jesus and put all of your hope and all of your, your, your faith and your trust in Jesus? And Jesus does now what Jesus did then. He points to what people normally fill themselves up with. And Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks this water, this well water that you come out to, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. 
And he goes on and he says, indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life from down on the inside. Like you will never have to look outside of yourself to satisfy your thirst again. I will put something down on the inside. Oh, come on, somebody. We sang about it all this morning. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God present with us in every moment of life. And Jesus said something welling up to eternal life, to eternal life. See, we know what it's like to live temporary life. We know what it's like to have temporary health. Some of us have been in temporary relationships. Everybody knows we have temporary money. That money is not for long. There are temporary pleasures in life. We have this temporary lifespan full of temporary accomplishments. Within two generations, do you realize that everything you do will have been forgotten? The only way you're going to be remembered is if somebody pays $19.99 and goes to Ancestry.com, sees your name on a paper, Everything that we do, everything in this life is so very temporary. And Jesus is saying, if you just knew who I was, if you just knew who I came from, if you just knew what I have to offer you, woman, I can give you something that will go on and on and on even after this temporary life is over. I can fill you up with something that will bubble up from within you and spill out of you and bring refreshing and bring new life to everyone that is close to you. But to this woman... Ideas like this, come on, she's in the middle of pain in her life. She's not thinking about eternity. She can't see past this morning. She can't see past tomorrow. She doesn't know how she's going to face another day. She's hurting and she's alone and she's an outcast even at the Samaritan table. And this is why John told us that it was noon when Jesus was here and the woman came to the well. Nobody in the desert goes to the well at noon. It's 120 degrees out there. You don't go to the well and get water. In it. You do that way early in the morning. You do it while it's still cool, while there's no sunlight beating down on you. But she was there because she knew that nobody else would be there. She was there then because she knew nobody else would be there to give her funny looks and say mean things there and then. You're offering me an eternal life? I, I'm not even sure I want my life to go on and last forever. And the woman says to Jesus, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Notice she didn't want the water for the water's sake. She wanted the water so that she wouldn't have to keep coming there. So that she wouldn't have to keep facing the stairs. She, she wanted water so there would be no more whispers and scowls when she was around. No more painful reminders of, of her life and her life choices and, and the, the, the glaring reality that she did not belong at anyone's table anymore. By herself, cut off, isolated. And to that woman in that condition with that much pain in her life, Jesus, it's almost as if Jesus is saying to her, look, if you want the water that I'm going to give you, you're going to have to hold out what's empty 
in your life. And he tells her, go, call your husband and come back. Now, we're getting to why this is so painful, but ouch, for her, there it is. For her, this is the moment when everything she was, everything she has been, all comes rushing into the present and messes up her future again. This is where people turn their backs and push her away and tell her that she can no longer sit with them or sit at their table ever again. This is the moment when people recognize her failures and her past and the shame of everything she's been. And she replies, I have no husband That covenant relationship, you know, where someone sticks with you forever, someone promises to be with you for better or for worse, someone promises to be with you rich or poorer, sickness and health, that I I don't have that anymore. Where I give myself to someone someone else and for better, for worse, for richer or for poorer, that, that, that relationship you're talking about where we get a seat at the most intimate of tables, just a table for two where I am loved and I am cherished and I'm cared for. I don't have one. I don't have. And Jesus presses the issue. You're right when you say you have no husband. Fact is you've had five husbands where Jesus did the first ever neck roll. (laughs) You've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Jesus just puts it all out there. All of her pain, all of her shame, everything in her life that has disqualified her from sitting with the other people at the other tables. Jesus has reached in from where she was trying to hide it and he has brought it out into the open and he has put it right there. But it was not to push her away. It was not to shame her. It was not to tell her, you can't sit at my table either. But it was for Jesus to let her know, I know exactly who you are. I see exactly where you've been and what you have done and what you have said and what you didn't say and what you did and what you did not do. I see you and I know you and I want you to know that that is exactly why I had to come this way. It was to meet with you. It was to reach out to you, never to push you away, but to tell you that I am here to sit at your table. Jesus is saying, I didn't have to go through Samaria, but I had to come sit with you. Jesus is saying, I didn't have to stop at this well, but I had to come and offer you a drink of living water. I didn't have to ask you for something, but I had to come and offer you something that will make you fresh and new on the inside and last forever and ever. And the message and the words and the invitation and the mercy and the grace of Jesus is still active today. And he comes to us. He comes to us. He comes to us at noonday. Our coping mechanism. That thing that we do to try and hide and not really face who we are and what we have messed up. He comes right there and right then and he brings all of it out in the open. But never to push us away. Never to push us to another table. 
Never to tell us that we can't sit with him, but to tell us, I know who you are. And I had to come to tell you that I love you. I love you. I'm here for you. The gift of God here for you. Can we stop this morning and could you just give him thanks and praise for coming and sitting with us, meeting us where we are. Jesus, you come regardless of our past. You come regardless of our race. You come regardless of how many times we've been married, Jesus. You are the gift from God. You are the rescuer king, the Messiah. You are Jesus. And you've come just for us. And he comes to take our temporary pain. He comes to take away the, the temporary failures, that, that moment, that segment of life, that season of life. And he comes to exchange the temporary and give us something that will last forever and ever and ever and ever. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town to those very same people that had kicked her out of their table, kicked her out of their social circles. She went back and she said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one that we have been waiting for? See, to the Jews and the Samaritans, this word Messiah, it, it, took, it just summed up and it wrapped into one word all of the promises that they had from the Old Testament. That one day God himself would come back. That one day God himself would come to be the king of everything. That one day God himself would come and he would put every injustice right and he would make every wrong turn into something beautiful. He would take every thorn and do it away. He would plant roses in their place. All the dry places he would make flow with water again. The Messiah, the rescuer. Could this be him? Could this be what he looks like? Could it be that he has come to Samaria? Everybody's looking for him in Jerusalem. Could it be that he's come here? Could it be that he came in the middle of the desert at noontime and sat with me? This isn't how a king wins a war. This isn't how a king establishes a kingdom. This isn't how we normally think of, of politics and, and religion and revolution. But it is so much better. Because he has found me where I am and he has come to tell me something I could never hear from another kind of king. No, this king, he heals the sick. This king, he feeds the hungry. This king, he mends the brokenhearted and he gives value and he gives belonging to everyone who's not sitting at the right tables. And because of that, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony and because of his words, many more became believers. They believe. They put their hope. They put their trust in Jesus. From enmity and fighting against the Jews, this, this one Jew, this, this man, there's something about this Jesus. And they follow him. And they embrace him. And then... They said to the woman in verse 42, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we, we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of Samaritans. 
We know that this man really is the savior of, of the Jews. We know that this man really is the savior of, of Republicans everywhere. Democrats. This man really is the savior of black people, white people, immigrant people, citizen. Oh, you guys get where I'm going? You're telling me this man really, we really believe this man is the savior of, and they didn't say good people. They didn't say perfect people. They didn't say people who wear the right clothes and sit at the right tables. But no, John, who saw it all, remembers what they said when they said, this man is the savior of the whole world. It doesn't matter your table. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter your associations. It doesn't matter your failures. Jesus is greater than all of your failures. His love conquers everything. His blood will wash any sin. He can make you new again he can fill you up on the inside with what you've been missing and it will go on and on and on and on oh come on and clap your hands a little bit louder for the king come on and lift your voices a little bit louder for the king he really is the savior of me, of me, come on, say it, he is the savior of me, come on, he is the savior of me, oh, come on, think about your failures, come on, think about your past, think about that in your life that you wish so bad you could go back and get a do-over on, think about that part of you that you know, you thought you had it beat for a while, right? It seemed like you had gotten the best of it instead of it getting the best of you. And, and it just, you don't know what it was. You don't know why. You can never know why. You can never figure out why. But it happened to get, think about that. He's the savior of that. He's the savior of me. He's the savior of my darkest days. He's the savior of my hate and my anger. He's the savior of my disappointment, my shattered dreams. He's the savior of my future. He's the savior of me. He's the savior of the world. We love you, Jesus. Come on, can you love him this morning? Oh, come on, that's the best news in the world for somebody this morning. That it doesn't matter who you are or where you've been, he's your savior. He's your savior. He's your Savior. Today, there is an open invitation to leave whatever table that you have defined your life by. To leave it. Not just for a little while, to leave it forever. And to go and to sit with Jesus. And it doesn't matter what circumstances put you at that table. It does not matter what you did to earn that seat, to earn that label, to earn that reputation. He comes to our noonday. He comes to our coping. He comes to what we have done to kind of insulate ourselves and build walls so that we don't think about it, so that we don't feel it. He comes right there. And he does. He, he presses into the pain a little bit. He makes us hold it out to him. He makes us admit that there are parts of us that are empty. And we have tried filling them up ourselves and it just doesn't last. We find ourselves thirsty 
for that thing again. Thirsty for that behavior again. Thirsty for something that we're trying so desperately to use to satisfy an eternal thirst for an eternal love of the eternal God. And when you finally do bring it out in the open to Jesus, he can forgive the past and he can fill you up with something that you will not find outside of him because he's the savior. He's the savior of me. And he just had to come here for me. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.